Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Sets at IUPOI's podcast, To the Stars. This is your host and space enthusiast, Chris Cardoza. I am a senior physics student serving as the president of Sets at IUPOI. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, our student organization. It is uh, one of the only student organizations on campus that promotes the exploration and development of space. We do this by taking on projects, organizing workshops, sending our members to conferences, and cultivating a general culture for space exploration. So this podcast, uh, it aims to engage with the space community at IUPUI, Indiana, and beyond. Uh, for ages, humans have looked above and wondered about life on other planets other than our own. And space exploration helps us answer questions about our place in the universe. So today we have a very special guest, Dr. Edward Rose. He's a lecturer of astronomy at IUPUI. He'll help us answer some questions about space exploration and prospects for life beyond Earth. That's the topic I went for. Okay. To like uh, talk about like life beyond Earth. I do have some topics to go off on, but feel free to like take the conversation wherever you want it to go. Well, I have a class where a third of my class is the talking about past, present, and future of space travel. So uh-huh. um, that's definitely something that's covered in one of my courses. So yes, I, could, yes. I should be able to handle any of the questions you've got about space exploration. Uh, they're, they're more of like things that I want to know personally about space exploration from an astronomy standpoint. So uh, hopefully I won't be asking you much questions. So I'll just like uh, talk about some things that I want to know personally about space exploration and you can tell me a little bit about it. Well, if you've got a class of 100 students, if there's something that one student wants to know something about, there's probably another 20 or 30 students that want to know about the same thing. They okay. just uh, aren't quite as um, confident to ask the question. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so before we begin, Dr. Roach, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you develop an interest in astronomy? Uh, well, my name, again, my name's Dr. Edward Rhodes. Um, I got my PhD in 2005 from the University of Minnesota, uh, where I did my PhD project on trying to uh, data mine the 1950s uh, data set uh, for the POS1 data set, which was an all-sky survey, uh, which had been digitized by the University of Minnesota. And I was looking for outer solar system objects like Pluto. Um, which Pluto was in that that survey, by the way, actually two different images or two different plates. Um, now, I, I got my interest in astronomy at a very young age when I was uh, third grade. Um, I had read most of the books in my small school library, at least the good ones, the fiction ones anyways. So I was looking for a book to read and I ended up in the back of the classroom, or back of the library where they had the nonfiction books. And there was a book with the picture of Saturn on it called The Nine Planets, and I checked it out and I read it. And I then proceeded to read every single astronomy book that they had in that library, which is probably about 10 books, um, about two or three times each. So I was, I was hooked, pretty much hooked after that. Uh, for a while, I wanted to be an astronomer or astronaut, not an astronomer. Uh, so when the Challenger 1 uh, exploded and people joked that NASA meant needed another seven astronauts, I would kind of silently say my head, need another six astronauts. But um, when I was in sixth grade on one fateful day, my grandpa took me to the uh, Science Museum in Portland, Oregon, because uh, I lived in Washington, and they had one of those gyro machines that you could sit in, and they would spin you around, and I just about passed out. And, <laughs> uh, needless to say, my grandpa wasn't very happy with them for that, but um, at that point, I kind of knew that with my gla- thick glasses that I had at the time... Um, I probably wasn't going to become an astronaut. And I also knew enough to know that astronauts only went up a couple hundred miles and they really weren't exploring space. I mean, they were going into space, but they weren't really exploring it. Okay. Um, And so that wasn't the direction I wanted to go. I wanted to actually study space and become an astronomer. Then in eighth grade, we had to do a project for a career project and decide, you know, look up a career and talk, you know, be able to write a paper about it. And at that point, I was exposed to astrophysics and decided that I liked astrophysics better than astronomy because astrophysicists made a little bit more money than the astronomers did. (laughs) Um, And the job sounded a little bit cooler. Um, And so I got a PhD in astrophysics. And um, uh, my three years of research um, for grad school 
didn't really get any results that could be confirmed, didn't really change the world. And I realized that uh, it was nice doing research, but I wasn't really much of a researcher. I was really good at the teaching, though, because I taught uh, astronomy uh, labs. Mm -hmm. And I definitely excelled at the teaching part. And so um, when I got the job here at IPY to be a lecturer and just teach and not have to do research, I thought that was a pretty good idea. And I've been here at IUPUI now for 15 years. Oh, that's good. So, and I'll probably be here at least probably another 15 more before my wife tells me it's time to retire. <laughs> so, which was your favorite book from the library that you like read all the books from? Which one really captivated your attention? Boy, it's been a long time. It was probably The Nine Planets. The, the nine first planets. one I read. But, um, but, you know, it was just, you know, Introduction to the Solar System. And my, my, first, my first hypothesis... Um, it was a terrible one, but my first idea was um, that uh, Venus kind of rotates backwards, okay, and very slowly and backwards. So I hypothesized that Venus was originally a moon of Jupiter and had broken free of the gravitational pull of Jupiter, and doing so flipped over and ended up and somehow ended up in the, the inner solar system. That, of course, was is completely wrong. That didn't happen. Uh, but you know, I, I was only a fourth grader at the time, so. <laughs> so what what kind of observations led you to that hypothesis? Oh, it just I, it wasn't observations. It was just the fact that Venus was rotating backwards. Okay, so you kind of like uh... so I'm like how could how could you get Venus to rotate backwards? Um, and it's more likely as a result of a um, it probably got flipped over by an asteroid and a large asteroid impact mm -hmm. early in its history, probably like a Mars size object, the kind of size object that that hit the Earth and created our Moon. Um, with the Earth, it probably hit us on the side. It made it spin faster. Okay. For Venus, it probably hit it dead center and actually s stopped its rotation. Okay. So Venus does not rotate that much. It, it's very slow. It actually takes longer to rotate than it takes to orbit the sun. Oh, okay. And That's it rotates backwards. Oh, okay. Um, which means it has no magnetic field and its core is, is solid. And since it has no magnetic field, it has no protection from the solar winds. Yeah. And so the solar winds stripped most of the water for Venus's atmosphere. Yeah, I, I kind of briefly read about that, like why Venus did not end up as another Earth-like planet. <laughs> it, it's because of it, its lack of magnetic field. Yeah, yeah. That was pretty interesting. So I did want to talk about um, uh, life in our planetary system and beyond our planetary system. So I just wanted to get into some of those topics. And a big part of space exploration is the motivation to find the evidence of life. It definitely is. And I think the best place to look is going to be Europa. Europa, um, okay. For those who don't know, it's a moon of Jupiter. Um, it's about the size of our moon. Um, it orbits Jupiter about uh, about the same distance that our moon orbits from Earth. And you know that the tides of the moon create about a one meter tide on the oceans of the Earth. Well, Jupiter's tides create a very large uh, tide on on Europa. Now, if Europa was the only moon of Jupiter, um, it would be locked in an orbit um, permanently uh, that would be a very circular orbit, and that pole would be constant. However, because of the outer moon, uh, the outer moon uh, Ganymede is in a orbital resonance, meaning that every time that Europa orbits the Jupiter, uh, Ganymede orbits twice. Or sorry, once, and Europa orbits twice. Reverse that. Um, what that means is that they meet on the same spot, the closest approach, in the same spot of the orbit, every other orbit. And so the gra slight gravitational tug from Ganymede that Europa gets comes in the same part of the orbit every two orbits. And what happens as a result is that the orbit becomes slightly, very slightly elliptical. And because of that slightly elliptical orbit, the high tide on Europa sloshes back and forth um, every time it orbits Jupiter. And that creates some friction, um, which creates tidal heating, which means it has an ocean underneath the surface, probably about five to 100 miles down. That is bigger in volume than any ocean on Earth, including the Pacific, mm -hmm. um, because it may be an ocean that's 100 miles deep. And it's liquid water. And it's, well, it's liquid water, methane, and ammonia. Okay. okay. And this is good because the, the, there are components for life and uh, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, or four of those. And you get the carbon from methane and the nitrogen from ammonia. So it's got all of the um, elements that it needs to create life. It's got the liquid water. It's got the energy, not from the sun, but from the tidal heating. Uh, you've got the right pressure, because mm -hmm. uh, if you don't have enough pressure, you can't have liquid water. Yeah. Um, and so it's got all the ingredients it needs for life. 
Now, the question is, how easy is it to get life? So is there life on Europa? Now, don't get too excited. There's not going to be intelligent life there. Okay. Um, it's most likely going to be life that very similar to life on Earth was 2 billion years ago. Okay. What happened on Earth was about 2 billion years ago, we got photosynthesizing life that could utilize oxygen. Yeah. And that made the energy projection of the creatures much faster, which means they could reproduce faster. Mm-hmm. And evolution is about how it's about generate number of generations. And so the more generations you can have in a time span, the faster you can evolve your species. And so what happened was evolution increased by about a factor of 15. So what could happen in 100 million years was the same evolution that you could have in 1.5 billion years. And so without the photosynthesis, because you don't have access to sunlight underneath this, the miles of ice, um, you're not going to have that evolution. And so most likely you're going to have very, very basic bacteria and algae and stuff like you had on Earth 2 billion years ago. So it's just happening on a much, much, much slower rate. Much slower rate, yeah. Okay. And I read somewhere that the water is trapped within two sandwiches of ice. Yes. On Europa. Yep. So yep. is that going to make like intelligent life difficult to yeah. happen? Yeah, you're probably not going to get intelligent life uh in that kind of circumstance. Okay. Um, unless it evolves in a way that is completely beyond anything that we could even fathom. Um, in which case, would we even recognize life and recognize it as intelligent? Um, right. But that's, that's a completely different argument that I can't answer. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, what What are your thoughts about the moon of Saturn Enceladus? I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, I believe it's pronounced Enceladus. Enceladus, yeah. Um, you've got the same thing on Enceladus as you have in Europa, except for it's a... Enceladus is a much smaller moon. Um, it's it's pretty small moon-wise. Um, it does have a bit of tidal heating, but for Enceladus, over long time periods, that, that heating seems to move around a little bit. Um, and so it's not consistent. And so that's problematic for life because you could have, you know, right now you have a sea in the, on the south end of the, the moon. Uh, but that sea, a billion years from now, could freeze and you could then have it in the north or something like that. Um, and we're not quite sure what's... I mean, it does have an orbital resonance with Downey, which gives you the tidal heating. Um, but we don't know how consistent that is. Um, and it, the sea's not nearly as large as the oceans on Europa. Um, it is possible to have life in Enceladus, but I would say that the odds are much, small, much, much smaller than on uh, Europa. Because I was reading about it, and they were talking about how if there's water on on Europa, we might have to dig to get that water. Yes. But yes. in... in and I cannot say the word Enceladus. Yeah, uh, actually, I think the better moon to look for life on Saturn is actually Titan. Titan. Okay. Um, you have a surface of Titan that's actually floating on a global ocean. And okay. we know this because when we were look, using the, the Cassini probe to map out the surface, we noticed that over a couple months span, the entire surface shifted by about 20 miles. Okay. It was a very large shift. And the only way you can have this is if you have the icy surface floating on an interior ocean, mm-hmm. um, which again would be water, methane, and ammonia. Um, we think that the methane in the atmosphere of Titan actually comes from that subsurface ocean, which could be created biologically, could be created non-biologically. We don't know. We'd have to get down there to look. Okay. <laughs> so you say that Titan is a better option in yes, our but, in our planetary better. system, at least. The, then Enceladus, yes. And Enceladus, I, I think Europa's Europa. number one. I would say Enceladus. Uh, sorry, I'd go Europa number one, Titan number two. So I was actually going to ask you, like, what are your, what is your top four? I would say four or five list for potential candidates or interesting planets that are present in our solar system. Uh, I put number three at Mars. Okay. Uh, because we know that there are subsurface lakes. Mm-hmm. Um, it had a, a sea. Um, and since Mars is smaller than the Earth, it would have could have actually developed life while Earth was still, the surface Earth was still cooling mm-hmm. and before we got our oceans. Yeah. And so there may have been life Mars before Earth. In fact, there, there's a, a hypothesis that you could have had life on Mars first, an asteroid could have hit Mars, knocked off a piece of life off of Mars onto a rock that's survived on the rock, made the trip to the earth, and then seeded the earth. 
So we may actually all be Martians. Oh, okay, okay. So please let our please let our president, no matter what year we we're in, no matter what what the uh, 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 political affiliation with the president, please let them know that I'm secretly a Martian and that I should be deported immediately. <laughs> so we are actually <laughs> trying to go back to home when we're trying to go to Mars. Yeah, unfortunately, if, if there's a certain party in the office, and I make that joke, uh, that some of my students get a little bit offended. I I, it, I don't intend it to be. Uh, uh, that political, but uh, <laughs> the joke is, please deport me to Mars. That's yeah, <laughs> I want to go back home. <laughs> so, uh, Mary Wotek, a senior scientist for astrobiology at NASA said, um, like, there's nothing else in our solar system with lots of life in it. Otherwise, we would have likely detected it. What is your take on um, finding life in our solar system, at least? Well, let me tell you about an object in our solar system that we have found life on in places we don't expect it to mm. be. Um, it took us a while to find this life because it's very hard to get to. Okay. This life is two miles underneath the surface. The planet is Earth. Okay. Okay, so we're still finding life on planet Earth. If you go to the mines of South Africa, the gold mines, two miles below the surface, we find bacteria down there. Okay. Very, very basic bacteria like you would have had on Earth probably three billion years ago. Um, and it... It gets eats whatever it can. For, it get energy from whatever it can. It's really hard to detect life that far down. If you don't have life on the surface, but you have life underneath, it's not really going to influence the surface. It doesn't really care what's happening on the surface, and so it's really hard to know that that life's down there. You actually have to go to that planet and do some digging. So Mars could have life underneath the surface. That we don't on, know about. On the surface, it would be very difficult to know that there's life there. Even if there's life on the surface 4 billion years ago before its magnetic field shut off and all the water either went into the ground or escaped into space or was dragged into space by the uh, um, uh, so solar winds. Um, same thing happened for Venus. Mm -hmm. um, It'd be really hard to tell. It, but we the one thing we have found that, that gives us hope is that there is, in fact, nitrogen in the soil. It took quite a few probes to Mars to have the right equipment to find nitrogen in the soil because it's very difficult to detect. But that gives us hope. That definitely gives us hope. And in fact, I went from teaching, it's like, maybe there is, but we're going to have to find the nitrogen first, to we found nitrogen, so there's a chance. What was that? What was that? Like, how? What was that period of time between you going? Um, we what, might need to find nitrogen too. Yeah, we found nitrogen. The Curiosity probe found it. The Curiosity uh, about probe five years ago. Okay. So it's been very recent. So for ten years, I was like, I want to be optimistic, but you know, I've got to, I've got to be realistic here. Until we find nitrogen in the soil, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a little, little pessimistic. Okay. But yeah. we found the nitrogen in the soil, so now I could say, well, we've got all the ingredients. Okay. Okay. So you're saying we have to actually go to the planet before yeah. we if can we want confirm. to find life on Mars, it's going to be at least 100 meters down, if not 1 to 10 miles down, because that's where the water is. Yeah, that's true. Um, we got to go down there and we got to dig, because no rover is going to dig 10 miles. Yeah. <laughs> that's just not going to happen. That's just yeah. not, not going to happen unless they're human there with the rover, and it's specifically a digging rover that all it does is dig a big hole down. Um, because that's basically what's going to take to do that. Um, but, you know, two to three hundred years in the future, when we're going to Mars to mine the iron on the surface, um, we'll be able to do that. Uh, you briefly talked about Venus and Mars and the magnetic field and how the absence of it stripped yes. like uh, essential things for life on there. Venus has sulfuric acid cloud. It has dense carbon dioxide atmosphere, no sufficient water. It's like a tale of how terrestrial planets become inhabitable. So how does studying yeah. what went wrong with planets in our solar system help us for searching for life? Well, okay, so we, we need to make sure that the planet we're looking for could have a magnetic field, first of all. Um, here's why it's very important. There's only two ways to get rid of carbon dioxide from, or three ways to get rid of carbon dioxide from an atmosphere. First is through photosynthesis, but you've got to have life to already do that. Okay. The second is to blast it into space, which is what kind of what happened for Mars, because yeah. the solar winds just stripped everything. Venus is big enough that you can't strip the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. What happens is you break the water molecules into H and OH, and you strip the H, and the H goes away because it's a very light element. Um, the third way to get rid of carbon dioxide is to um, have it go into water create carbonic acid and rain into an ocean. 
And that's what happened for the earth. Most of the carbon dioxide on earth is actually not locked up in fossil fuels. Most of it is in the deep ocean where it's been for 4 billion years, like 90% of it. Um, and that's how you get rid of the carbon dioxide. In fact, we have more carbon on earth than Venus has in its atmosphere. So if oh. we evaporated our oceans, the earth would be worse than Venus. The surface oh, of the earth okay. would melt. But so for Venus, since it uh, had no protection from solar rays, the solar, uh, solar winds, which come at a, about 200 miles a second, mm-hmm. hit the upper atmosphere, break apart the water molecules and drag the hydrogen into space. And so in a span of about 5 to 10 million years, you lose all of your water mm-hmm. or almost all of it. It still has trace amounts. All very, of it's official water. It's got yeah. like, if you could cool Venus enough so that the water could actually rain to the surface, it would be about one to two inches of water. Okay. Um, covering the entire planet. Yeah. So it, it's almost nothing. Um, it's about how much the Earth's atmosphere has in, in terms of water at any given point in time. Um, but of course, we have most of our water on the ground. Um, and so without the water to form a one to two mile ocean like we did, mm-hmm. there's just no way to get rid of the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And so right. the carbon dioxide state, and since it has 90 times the Earth's atmosphere in carbon dioxide, um, we have the greenhouse effect. And you're a physics major, so you probably kind of understand how it works, but most people really think they do, but they don't. The, the greenhouse effect works as the layman's terms is the atmosphere acting like a heat lamp powered by the Earth's own heat. Mm-hmm. The extended version of that is what's happening is the atmosphere is absorbing the heat that the Earth is emitting or Venus is emitting. And then it emits its own heat in every direction. And so what happens is the surface of the planet now has two energy sources, the sun and, and the atmosphere. So- and so that means, and since the temperature of an object is just dependent on the total energy it has, if it's receiving more energy, it's going to heat up until such point it, it's, as that it emits as much energy as it receives. So the more energy it receives, the higher the temperature is going to be. It takes some time, some time to get there, but eventually it's going to be like, give it a million years, it'll be there. Mm-hmm. And so that means that Venus, the surface of Venus is extremely hot, even on the night side, because it's getting more warming from the atmosphere than it actually gets from the sun. And the scary thing is that Venus actually reflects most of its sunlight because of the sulfur clouds. Yeah. If you get rid of the sulfur clouds for Venus, the temperature gets so hot on Venus because you're not reflecting that sunlight anymore, that you would actually melt the surface. And we oh. think that actually happened five, about 250 to 500 million years ago. Okay. Um, the entire surface of Venus melted. So uh, that's kind of scary. <laughs> so Venus right now is kind of in an ice age at 700 degrees Kelvin. Oh, that's that the ice age. Ice age for... meaning that you have a solid surface. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. So, but if you get rid of, but as you get rid of, Eventually, chemical processes will get rid of that sulfur, and maybe you could melt the surface again. I don't know what the time variance is going to be like on that. Nobody does. But, um, but for the Earth, we have our magnetic field. And so what happens is the solar winds, which are charged particles, hit that magnetic field and go around the Earth instead of running into the atmosphere, mm-hmm. except for a little small spot at the poles where it can actually fall into the poles. And that's where you get the aurora because these high-energy particles are breaking apart molecules in the atmosphere, break, you know, knocking off electrons, and then they come back together and you see the, the lights. Basically, it's a giant fluorescent tube. <laughs> the trade atmosphere is a giant fluorescent tube. Yeah. <laughs> so based on what you said, there are a lot of things that are kind of required to give you life to exist and even like intelligent life to like exist on a planet like Earth. Well, okay. So life in general, intelligent life, there are s- Slightly different requirements in that intelligent life has more requirements than life in general. Mm -hmm. So just for life in general, you need to have a magnetic field. Without a magnetic field, you're either going to get a Venus or a Mars. You're not going anywhere without a magnetic field. So, for example, red dwarfs. I know there's a lot of hubbub around Earth-sized planets around red dwarfs because they're easy to find. Because the planet, the star is smaller, so it's easier to find a smaller planet. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm a little skeptical about those because those planets have to be so close to the star to be in the a habitable zone where you're getting enough sunlight to have the right temperature, that they're actually tidally locked star, which means that one side is going to face the star all the time. Right. And the other side will not. And even if you get a Mercury kind of situation where um, Mercury rotates three times every time it orbits twice, it, if you're on Mercury, the sunrise to sunset to sunrise is two Mercurian years. Okay. Um, even with that, it's pretty brutal. 
now, there are some questions about whether you get a magnetic field from convection of the core and not just rotation of the planet, because if you're tidally locked, your rotation is going to be about a month instead of a day, um, in which case your magnetic fields are going to be just way too weak. Uh, maybe if you can get convection to pump that magnetic field up, there's some questions about whether um, the atmosphere can make this planet spin. So the debate's still out there, so it's not definitive that red dwarfs can't give you life, but it doesn't look good. Um, and if you want intelligent life, it's very bad because they have a lot of solar flares um, that would make it tough for intelligent life. Um, so for intelligent life, you actually want a star that's about half a solar mass to maybe at the most one and a half solar masses. The reason being is that intelligent life, intelligence takes time, at least if our planet's an indication. It took four, billion, four and a half billion years on our planet. Okay. So you're going to need a star that lasts for at least four billion years. Right. The lifetime of a star is the ma is 10 billion years, which is expected main sequence lifetime of our sun, divided by the mass squared. Okay. Because the bigger the star is, the brighter it is, the faster it's using up its fuel. And so a one point a two solar mass star only lives two and a half billion years for, for the main sequence. And then once it leaves the main sequence, it pretty much wipes out life. Oh. Because uh, the star gets a thousand times brighter. Right. Which means the temperatures go up by a factor of 30. Now, that's not a factor of 30 in Fahrenheit. That's a factor of 30 in Kelvin. Right. So right now, the Earth's 288, or 288 degrees Kelvin. Multiply that by 30. That's the end of it. Yeah, yeah you're, well, you're basically in the sun. Now, Pluto, which is currently at 40, you multiply that by... Sorry, no, no. It's not by 30. Sorry, square root of 30. Multiply by 6. 6 times 40 is 240, which is almost... It's about Mars temperature. So Pluto becomes Mars. Okay. It, when the sun becomes a red giant. And Earth is solar. The Earth so. is either escapes from the solar system um, or gets eaten by the sun. We're not right. quite sure what happens. It's uh, the jury's still out there. Okay. So I came across um, a work by Professor Tyrell from the University of Southampton, and he used the university supercomputing facility to look at how hundred thousand Earth-like planets will respond to a climate-altering event hundred times. Yes. And 9% of them are successful in sustaining life for 3 billion years like our Earth did. So the professor said that Earth stayed suitable for life in part due to luck. So how do you think this relates for our search oh, for life? Oh, there was definitely luck there. We, we had some, uh, if, you, if you go back to the geologic history, there were some events that could have wiped out life and wiped out most life. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there is a, ma uh, a matter of luck in there. Uh, so 2.2 billion years ago, uh, before that, our atmosphere had no oxygen in it. It was mostly methane and some carbon dioxide. Methane was the, producing the most heating on the surface. And keep in mind, our sun was about 15% dimmer than it is today. Um, well, when we got photosynthesizing creatures, um, they almost killed themselves because oxygen was a poison to them. Oh, okay. They were anaerobic, meaning they, they did work without oxygen. But once the oxygen started to go into the atmosphere... It wiped out the methane, which meant that a lot of the greenhouse gases went away. We had the opposite problem 2.2 billion years ago that we have today. Right. And what happened was global temperatures fell. And in addition to this, we had a supercontinent, which affects circulation patterns of oceans. And the supercontinent was close to the pole, which means it's very easy to form glaciers. Mm -hmm. And so the glaciers went all the way to the equator. Now, we don't know what they did in the ocean, but on land, they went to the equator. So we call the snowball earth part one. And if you're saying part one, that usually means there's a part two. Yeah. But 2.2 billion years ago, we almost wiped out life on earth. Right. But then once that went away, because the supercont broke apart, then life evolved and we could basically create a new uh, niche for all the new life forms. And we can get to the next stage of life, which was multicellular life. Because at that point, we'd only single cell life. Mm-hmm. 600, about 600 million years ago, we had Snowball Earth Part 2. It, it actually came in four waves. Because what happens is when you freeze the entire surface of the Earth, you have no way to scrub carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Because there's no, because we, we use rain to do that. And volcanoes are still going to pump out carbon dioxide. They don't pump out a lot. But if they put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, there's nothing to take it away. Well, imagine that you have a job where you can't spend any money and you just collect the paycheck it goes straight in your bank account and you just collect that for you know five ten years well you're going to come back five ten years later your bank account's going to be huge yeah because you didn't spend any of it mm -hmm. 
Well, that's what happened. Our carbon dioxide levels went up and up and up and up until they were like a thousand times where they were today. A super greenhouse, enough to actually overcome the fact that we're reflecting 90% of sunlight, and it broke the ice, and then the ice goes away, the carbon dioxide goes away, but the problem is the situation that started it was still there, and so the ice just came back. Okay. So the reason why we had the ice at that time is, one, we had a supercontinent near the pole, part two. Yeah. Um, we actually kind of have that now with uh, Eurasia, uh, almost Africa in there too. And, and uh, But um, we also had the fact that the oxygen levels were starting to tick up from 1% to about 10%. And so the carbon dioxide levels were coming down. And that meant the greenhouse warming was coming down. And so it just froze everything four times. Four times. And, but somehow life survived. Right. Life seems to find a way to survive. Um, so I don't know if that, I, I would say that 9% is maybe a bit uh, um, conservative. Conservative, okay. I, um, I'd say it's probably a bit higher than that mm -hmm. just because if you look at those events on paper, you say, you'd probably say life on Earth is no longer exists, but it still does. So, I mean, but there's a lot of things that can happen. There's a lot of ways the universe can kill you. It's kind of like the, the movie where... Um, here in the Old West, 100 Ways to Die in the Old West. I forget the exact name of the movie, but it was a comedy movie about maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, well, we have 100 Ways to Die in the Universe. Uh -huh. So, um, but, and one of these things happened 260 million years ago. Right. We don't know what happened 260 million years ago. There's a couple ideas, but it seems that our atmosphere turned to nitrous, ox nitrous uh, oxide, large amounts of nitrous oxide, which killed, what blocked sunlight, killed the plants, was a poison for creatures in the ocean. And we wiped out 90% of all species on Earth. Right. Uh, that was the biggest extinction event in the history of planet Earth, um, which then let, led to the conditions that would later lead to the dinosaurs. Okay. Um, but it was a huge extinction event. I mean, 99% of all creatures died. Uh, most of all species died. It's the only extinction event that actually wiped out species of insects. Oh, uh, okay. Large species. There are other ones that wiped out certain species of insects, but this wiped out a very large percentage of insects. Mm -hmm. um, so what are you saying is, even though we are very lucky to be here, we have survived like mass, <laughs> massive extinctions. You know, the, there's the expression "better lucky than good," but the thing is, if you're good, it's much easier to be lucky. Yeah, and and that's true whether you know you're playing a board game or whether you're doing finances. You know, if you put yourself in the right stocks, it's much easier to be lucky. But sometimes you, you, the, the luck is helpful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what makes um, life so good at surviving all of these mass extensions? Uh, you know, um, I, it just becomes robust. You get, you know, 20 different species that could do 20 different things, and it takes right. 20 different things to kill them off. It's hard to kill all of them. Okay. Um, I briefly looked at your work about trans-Neptunian objects, and... Um, you are interested in the secrets of the outer solar system. So what yes. are these secrets and how are they related to like these terms that I came across, like termination shock or interstellar medium? Uh, well, the termination shock is just the, the, the boundary layer between the solar winds and the winds from the interstellar medium. Okay. Um, I, I wouldn't say there's a huge importance to it. Okay. Um, there's kind of a, you know, it's like you've left the city limits of Indianapolis you're still kind of in Indianapolis, but you left the city limits. So now you're kind of in the unincorporated Indianapolis. It's kind of like that. Um, and it's a while before you get into interstellar, interstellar space. Um, but the, the reality is the outer solar system is helpful because most of the objects in the outer solar system have the composition when they were formed. Uh -huh. um, the Earth has changed its composition over four and a half billion years because of biology, because of plate tectonics, because of asteroid, all sorts of other stuff. Right. Most of our heavy materials are in the center of the Earth. Okay. Um, these things, they haven't done that. And so if you look at the composition of these objects, it tells you the composition of the solar nebula that formed the solar system. Um, but also the distribution of these objects gives you clues and hints about how our solar system evolved during the formation phase of the solar system. Um, the way that the outer solar system is set up, we know that Neptune actually pushed out during its formation um, quite a bit. It probably formed closer where Uranus is now and moved outwards. Um, 
Whereas Jupiter and Saturn, we think moved and we know they moved inwards from where they formed. What we don't know is how much they moved in. There's two classes of thought on that. Um, I think I, I like the one where it only moved in a little bit um, because I think it formed inside the ice line and the ice line moving past it, I think made it hit their runaway accretion phase. But that was very close to the point where the sun was finished forming. And so it was late the for evolution of the formation of the solar system, um, which is why we don't have a hot Jupiter in our solar system like we see in about 25% of other solar systems. Um, but there's another theory that Jupiter came into the asteroid belt, Saturn followed it, and gravitational influences between the two pulled both the planets out to where they are today. Um, it's possible, but I don't know. It's, that one just seems kind of strange to me. But I also came across, um, like you said, um, our Jupiter is not a hard Jupiter, but I also came across a term called good Jupiters. Um, I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, it's like um, a Jupiter whose role actually helps the inner terrestrial, terrestrial planets. Oh, okay, kind of like our Jupiter. Good yeah, Ju okay. a good Jupiter. Yeah, well, so what Jupiter d did was it, um, it does a few things. It tossed a lot of the objects that were in the middle solar system because you would have had a lot of icy objects in the middle solar system that if left unchecked would have just hit everything for probably a billion years instead of a half a billion years. Uh, but Jupiter tossed them in the outer solar system into a region of space called the Oort cloud. And you occasionally get those objects to come back to the inner solar system in, in the modern day. Um, now, of course, some of those objects crashed into, we think there, it, was, it was an absolute roller derby. Um, Mars-sized object hit the Earth, created the moon. Um, one hit Venus. We know one hit Mercury, knocked off most of its surface material. Um, probably interactions with with not even Mars-sized objects, but probably objects much more massive than the Earth, probably caused Uranus and Neptune to tip over. Um, because Neptune's on its side. Neptune or Uranus is on its side. Neptune's over past its side. It's actually tipped all the way or tapped over another 30 degrees. Um, and so we know that these things probably happened. Um, and, but uh, without Jupiter, you know, maybe we don't quite get the solar system as we do today. But a lot of these things, we don't know how, exactly how important it is because we only have one data point. Right. You know, if you take away Jupiter, does our solar system still form? Do we still have life? It's too complicated. Does it maybe just shift the time frames a little bit? I don't know. I can't tell you that. Right. So I want to transition now into something more speculative, okay. um, like uh, uh, about things about like what other technological civilizations might look like. So there are two schools of thought about this. The first one is supported by likes of Carl Sagan and the Drake equation that yes, um, there is the the universe is teeming teeming with life. Well, the Drake equation doesn't say that the universe is teeming with life. The Drake equation allows you to calculate it. Calculate it. And if yeah. you use some conservative numbers in that, right. which most of my students do when I have them do their own numbers for the Drake equation, um, the ones that are even the most, uh, the least conservative tend to get a number that's maybe a thousand okay. civilizations for our, just our galaxy. Our galaxy. But here's the thing, if there's a thousand civilizations in our galaxy and you do the math to how, how far away the nearest civilization would be, it's several thousand light years. And, and the way that SETI's looking for life, that life would have to be within 2,000 light years. The fact that SETI has not found life in 50 years either means that one, life is not doing what we're doing, which is very possible, because there's a very narrow window where life would actually do what we're doing before it either evolves out of it on the upside or devolves back to the downside. Um, but or it just means that life is further than 2,000 light years. I, I think that the Star Trek universe and the Star Wars universe, where there's life on every single planet everywhere, um, and that the nearest intelligent life is 10 light years away or less, I, I think that that's, it's great for science fiction, but I don't think it's reality. I think the reality is that life is much more spread out um, and so that we only have maybe a few civilizations um, within our own galaxy because these civilizations, they're not going to last forever. Yeah. Um, I, I call it the, uh, um, so we have Darwinism as species. Yeah. But it, there's sort of a cultural Darwinism. Mm -hmm. 
that species that as they evolve their technology, if they evolve their technology too fast, or if they evolve their culture too slow, or both, that civilization will eventually destroy itself. So there, I call it the uh, evolution of the, the most civil. That's species with civility that grow their civility at the rate that they grow their technology will survive. Right. If you grow your technology too fast... You can't keep up with it. You, you will use it to destroy things, like the nuclear bombs. Yeah. We've got those, and our, our civility has grown enough that we kind of be able to keep pace with that for the level of that that we have. But at some point, it'll be people will be able to make nuclear bombs in their backyard. Right. Our, our technology will get that far. Now, it might take 100 or 200 years for the case. Okay. But if we're not culturally civil enough at that point, neighbors are going to start nuking neighbors. <laughs> it's, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say that, that, that the human race is all that bad, but the problem is when you get to the point where it only takes 1% of the population to destroy the other 99, mm -hmm. that's going to be a problem. Okay. Now, right now, we're not there. Yeah. Right now, it would take at least 20% of the population to destroy the other 80%. Mm -hmm. And as a civilization, I think we only, if you count the bad eggs, maybe 5%. Okay. It's 5% to screw it up for the rest of us. Right, <laughs> it really right. is. Okay. I mean, when I look at my classroom, and if I look at the students who try to cheat on tests and stuff, it's usually around 5%. Okay. So, um, if you look at the percentage of the population, did you really, really nasty crime? Not uh, little inky-deaking things that they then turn into something big. Uh -huh. um, you know, it's probably around 5%. Okay. I don't know what the actual popular uh, the prison population is. It's, it's a number that's way higher, probably higher than it should be. It's, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's higher than 5% or not, but mm -hmm. really 5% are the people. And they're not necessarily in prison, but right. they're in and out. You know, they're the ones shoplifting from the Dollar Tree. So, um, <laughs> but... Um, Right now, that that number is too low, and our technology is too low, so they don't have enough. They don't have the technology to kill the rest of us. Right. Um, but you know, one hundred years from now, two hundred years from now, when energy is much easier to come by, um, because you know every house has a solar panel on it. That's gonna that's gonna be the truth. That's hundred years from now. It's probably gonna be the truth fifty years from now, to be honest. Um, which is why I have a really weird view on global warming, um, as a scientist, even. But, um, you know, when we get to that point, the energy is a little bit easier. Maybe it's easier to do some of these things. Um, but we just got to make sure that we grow our hearts at the same rate we grow our minds. Right. If we do that, we'll be fine. But that's a neural line to do. And I think it's really hard for civilizations in general to do that. So there's probably a lot of civilizations that don't make the, the, the survival. You know, how many civilizations out of 100 civilizations how many of them kill themselves off with nuclear war when they hit the World War II level of technology? Yeah. It's probably a large percentage. Um, when you get to the point where you can harness the power of the, or, you know, harness nuclear power, or not nuclear power, but um, harness uh, fusion, nuclear fusion, and your energy level goes up, you know, how many civilizations are going to survive that? How many civilizations are going to get to a point technologically and just go, you know what, science sucks, let's ignore science. <laughs> And revert back to a lower level of technology, yeah. uh, which we kind of did on this planet back in the 1200s. Mm -hmm. um, because what they knew, the, the Greeks knew was, I mean, you, you look at it today and like, wow, they knew all of that. And they didn't, in the, the 1200s, we think of them as not knowing any of that. Like, you know, the ancient Greeks knew that the earth was a sphere. They knew it rotated. They knew its size, accurate to 4%. And they didn't even know it was on most of it. But they knew how big it was. The reason why Columbus came to America wasn't because he was trying to prove that the Earth was a sphere, but because he was following a, I, I call Columbus the greatest conspiracy theorist of his time. And so before we got rid of Columbus Day, well, we sort of have it. I call it Conspiracy Theorist Day. Okay. So I'm glad it's now Indigenous Peoples Day. Because uh, <laughs> I didn't want to cel celebrate a, 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 conspiracy. a conspiracy theorist every year. But he, he, he took, there was, there was a second calculation that was actually done by Ptolemy. Um, done very badly. Everyone knew that it was bad. And it predicted that the earth was 6,000 miles in diameter smaller than the Greek what was predicted otherwise, six to 7,000 miles. Yeah. Columbus went, wait, hey, if this number's right, India's only 3,000 miles away. Uh -huh. So he goes to every leader in Asia and every, or sorry, every leader in Asia, every leader in Europe, they all reject him, including Spain. 
But then he went back to Spain a second time, and Spain was in the middle of the Civil War, and they were desperate. There was Hail Mary times. They were like, okay, here's some money. Take some ships and go. We think you're wrong. We'll never see you again. Goodbye forever. <laughs> or, as I, or, or as I teach my students, event horizon, <laughs> which means goodbye forever. Um, and he goes for 3,000 miles. His crew's about to mutiny because they haven't found anything. And then finally, at 3,000 miles, they find land. Right. Right where Columbus expected India to be. Uh-huh. And that's why he thought he had found India. He wasn't crazy. He was just woefully misinformed. Right, right. Um, and so, and, and so he, he found, found what he thought was India. But um, yeah, if, if another continent hadn't been in the way, we would not know about Columbus today because he would have shipwrecked and nobody would have ever talked about him after that. I mean, just some crazy guy who... Convinced, he was going who, who, who convinced uh, Spain to bankrupt themselves on some conspiracy theory. Yeah. <laughs> what you talked about, um, nuclear weapons, um, is that related to the Great Filter somehow? Um, I haven't heard that term specifically. But okay. um, yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that civility versus technology will be a great filter. I also think that species that become interstellar mm-hmm. will be benevolent. benevolent. Um, I, you know, the sci-fi movies, the, the aliens are always out to kill us all. I don't think that's going to be the case. Because, well, why do you think that? Because if civilizations were just out there to kill everything and enslave everything, they would have destroyed themselves. Because people who always look for enemies, if you can't find an enemy without, you're going to find an enemy within. Every single time. And you're going to turn on yourself with that technology because the technology required to do interstellar travel. And that any kind huge. of time frame of the astronaut or to do warp, Akubri warp drive it requires such a level of sophistication understanding of the science, the, way beyond what we even have now. We, we know the basics. We know kind of what the roadmap is, but actually getting there, we have no idea. So their civility um, overcame so If they, if they don't have that civility, they have enough power to destroy themselves a million times over. Mm-hmm. Also, another thing, this was actually... Um, I forget the member of SETI that actually gave a talk about this, and I think it's a good one. There's a point where species will most likely go from being biological to mechanical, and that is when they're doing starting to do interstellar travel because there are so many advantages that mechanical beings have for interstellar travel over uh, biological beings that it is just too and, – and the technology required is so high that it would just be too easy to bridge that gap. And so – if an alien species came to planet Earth, most likely they'd be mechanically based, not biologically based, which means that their needs are different than ours, which means the Earth is probably not the best planet for them, but Mercury is because it has the oh, most metals right. and it's close to the sun so you can get the most energy. Right. And if they sent us a message, you'd probably be like, we don't want to mess with biting ants because that's what we would be to them. It's just a bunch of biting oh, ants. Oh, like, yeah, it's something along yeah. the lines of the zoo hypothesis? Well, not a zoo hypothesis, but if you go, if you go to the park and you have a picnic, right, and you see a bunch of ants, do you kill the ant hive? No, you just yeah. move away from it, right, right, because they're, they're not worth your time. Yeah, you're not, you, 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 your interests are not in line. With yeah, the it's ants. killing you, killing them doesn't help you, right. And so I think most likely, if a species comes here, either they would completely ignore us. Or they would maybe go, oh, how cute a human, let's domesticate them. <laughs> I don't think they're going to enslave us. Uh, maybe they might, you know, mentor us, right. maybe. But, you know, of course, the prime American and stuff like that. Again, it's a civility issue. Right. If you give a civilization technology that it is not ready for civilly, that, you're going to hurt that species and not help them. Right. It's like if, if you give, they've done studies on this. If, if you give someone that has no money, has never had money, you give them a million dollars. Two years later, or three years later, they're actually worse off than they were before because all that money went away. People, they find that everyone wants their money and they give it to everyone and, and or they buy stupid stuff and or they buy a house and they have a mortgage, but they don't have the money to pay the mortgage anymore. So mm-hmm. they lose their house. They have not been trained to use that money. It's Yeah, they haven't been trained to use the money. They don't have the mindset for that money uh, or how to manage it. Um, but they have a consumer mindset and they consume. Um, but they don't have the means to keep that consumption. And so, again, it's the lottery winner syndrome. That What was it? I don't know what the percentage is. A huge percentage of lottery winners go bankrupt. It's even worse because 
And in a lot of countries, if you've won the lottery, you can't get on food stamps. Oh, okay. You're 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 forbidden from ever doing. So you're actually even worse off, right? Than if you had ripped up that that ticket. Okay. And thrown it in the trash, or donated it anonymously to some charity. <laughs> right. Um, because they a lot of a lot of people have zero financial um, because it's not taught. I mean, we're in the K twelve system is fine. Now I'm going way off astronomy. Sorry about that. <laughs> but where is it taught? It's not taught anywhere. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I actually do that in my classrooms. I, I give them a little bit of financial knowledge to, mm-hmm. to make it easier. But, uh, but this, this, okay, that's where we got there. Because if a species gave us technologies, like ways to produce energy, infinite amount of energy. Well, what's the first thing we do? Whatever country gets it first uses it to destroy every other country. So. <laughs> right. Oops. <laughs> now, I mean, there are. I mean, there are some countries that are more civil than others, but only civil during certain times. I mean, you get a regime change, and or you get some really yeah, yeah advanced technology. Yeah, and I'm not going to get into specifics, but there are there are some governments on this planet right now that I am a little fearful of. Right, that's true. Um, so is the <sighs> I think um, we are coming uh, towards the end of our time, so I'm going to quickly go towards okay. the last section. And it is um, more about your opinion about why do humans want to explore space? The same reason we wanted to explore the oceans. The mm-hmm. same reason we want to explore to the nearest mountains. One, we're curious. We want to know what's out there. Two, uh, we're inventive. We like to do things we've never done before um, and go places we had never gone before. And three, we want to find new realms to find new things to do, find ways to build our economies. Um, you know, it's entrepreneurs that are almost always the ones that push that envelope. You know, Marco Polo getting to China. Um, now, governments usually start because they got to prove that it's safe so that you know what your risk reward is. Yes. But once you understand the risk reward, then it's entrepreneurs that take that next step. Mm-hmm. Um, global warming is going to be the same way. Global warming is going to be solved by entrepreneurs, not by government. Oh, okay. Because so, gov- our governments can't invent cheaper solar panels. Yes. Entrepreneurs can. Okay. So government said the president, a president, and then the entrepreneurs go and innovate. All the government can do is set the stage to make it easier for the entrepreneurs to do what they do best. Right. And you have a course about um, the impact, like one topic in that course was the impact of relativity on space exploration. What, what did you mean by that? Um, okay, so with relativity is good because if, if without relativity, if I wanted to go to Betelgeuse and back, mm-hmm. at the speed of light, it would take me 500 years to get there, 500 years to get back. Right. Nobody signed up for that mission. Nobody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But with relativity... It still takes a thousand years round trip for planet Earth, which is one of the downsides of relativity. Um, but I, this is value gamma, where gamma equals one over the square root of one minus v squared over c. So over c is a unit of velocity. It's the speed of light. Yeah. Um, where if I'm traveling 99% the speed of light, for example, my gamma value is seven. All times for me are decreased by factor of seven. So instead of taking a thousand years, it only takes 150 years. Well, that's not enough. So let's ramp it up. Let's make my gamma 100. So that would be 99.99 something percent the speed of light. So now instead of taking uh, 500 years there, 500 years back, from my perspective, it takes five years to get there, five years to get back. That's 10 years. Not everyone's going to sign up for that mission, but a lot of people will. Okay. Um, especially those who want to, want to be the, the near Armstrong of the human race for interstellar. Um, the, there's two drawbacks, though. There's two pipers to be paid. There's always a piper. The first piper is a thousand years goes by for planet Earth. God knows what we're going to be like in a thousand years, yeah. what government's going to be like in a thousand years. Or mm-hmm. even if they remember that you left a thousand years prior, they may right. shoot you out of the sky because they don't know who you are. You think an alien invasion is occurring. <laughs> um, or you, know, you may find the human race doesn't exist at all. Or the country that you are is no longer a country or is an enemy of every other country. They shoot you down just because you're of that country. Right. Who knows? Who knows? Or you're the greatest hero that ever lived. Um, but the other, the other one, which is even bigger one for us as a species at this point of our uh, technological evolution, is the energy. The energy required to get a spacecraft to a gamma of a hundred 
is 100 times the mass energy of the spacecraft. Now, let me put, it, put this in terms that so people can understand. I'm about 100 kilograms. If there was a, uh, an anti-me of 100 kilograms and we shook hands, our wave functions would cancel out, and that E equals mc squared of 100 kilograms, we get instantly, or 200 kilograms, because both of us, we instantly converted to energy. If we were standing in the middle of Texas, the blast wave from that handshake, I, I bet you didn't know that handshakes can, uh, could, can change the world. They can. <laughs> um, <laughs> pins matter the sword, but the handshakes uh, buyer than both of them. But um, destroy everything in the state of Texas. Oh. The blast wave would wipe out Texas, the entire state. That's only 200 kilograms. Now, and that's at one time the mass energy. Now, I'm going to take a million times the mass of a million kilograms. So we're talking 5,000 times the energy it takes to destroy Texas. And now I have to multiply that by 100. So I need 500,000 times the energy that takes to destroy the state of Texas. This is the amount of energy that the United States uses in approximately a million years. That's for one spacecraft. Now, if I want a space-faring civilization, I need a million of those spacecraft, which means I need a trillion times the energy I need today. Right. So that means that energy a thousand years from now is going to be a trillion times more important. I'm going to need a trillion times more of it than I need today. Now, I know that that sounds like a huge hurdle to overcome, but in a thousand years, that's only 3% per year increase of energy per year. Oh. Now, for us to sustain that growth of, uh, of energy, we can't use the current forms of energy. We would run out in the first day. So yeah. we need other forms of energy. Energy is going to become more important in the future. More, more importantly, energy that we could replicate and renew and keep producing constantly and at greater rates that we can scale up. Oil can only be scaled so much. Coal, natural gas can only be scaled so much. They can't get us to the, the, the stars. Right. If we want to go to the stars, we need something different. We need scalable energy. Yes. And it's not even a matter of environment, but it's a matter of economics, of energy economics, money economics, and everything. Because our world just runs on energy. Right. If you took energy out of the equation, our world would be like the world of 1200 BC, where the entire civilizations, un, for, for reasons we still don't know today, completely collapsed. I mean, imagine what you would do at home if you your power went out and never went back on. Yeah. You know, even things as, as keeping food right. would go away. Your car would only last for how long the gas your gas tank lasts. And not very long. And now you're walking everywhere. <laughs> or bicycling everywhere. Where some people are like, yeah, that's great. I do that. All right, good. But guess what? Your grocery store is not going to get more food. Right. There's a lot just of no people trucks die because, to bring it there. Yeah. Your Walmart's not going to get anything because there's not trucks and planes and boats to get it there. Because yeah. they just all take energy. You know, we go back to clipper ships. <laughs> right. And people on life support would die. And yeah, people on life support would die. That, that is the least of our... I mean, I, I don't, that, I don't <laughs> want to be heartless because that is, that is a tragedy. But that would be the absolute least of your worries. Of the worries, yeah. Yeah. And... Um, uh, like NASA has expressed, we are presented with the with these windows of opportunity to make strides in space exploration. What are your thoughts about this renowned entrance, like this renowned interest that we are having in space exploration right now? We need iron propulsion. Iron propulsion. Chemical rockets aren't, aren't going to get us to Mars. Okay. They just aren't. I mean, you could, but it's 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 too expensive. It's too tough. We need iron propulsion. Um, now, the current iron propulsion, we would have to put on a chemical rocket to get an orbit around the Earth. But what iron propulsion does is it uses electromagnetic fields, electro and or magnetic, to accelerate individual um, protons and electrons up to close to the speed of light. So your, your exhaust velocity is now close to the speed of light instead of being 10 times less than your velocity of your spacecraft, which means you need 97% fuel, which is ridiculous. Um, once you can do that, you can get to very high velocities. It just takes time because the acceleration is really slow right now. But you can do it. Um, and eventually, it's something you, you can scale to get to very close to the speed of light. Um, because if you can shoot out the exhaust at 90% the speed of light and you have half fuel, you, you get to 90% the speed of light. 
Right. Okay, it probably doesn't quite work that way because of relativity, but um, maybe it does. Um, yeah, because it would still be momentum versus momentum. And so that's the future. I think that's going to be the near-term future of space travel. It's going to be iron propulsion. Iron propulsion. Solar sails have limited use, and they don't work very well far from a star. Um, and they're very tough to use in the first place. You need very large areas of very light material to do it. Um, it works if you're in the inner solar system, Venus, Mercury, it works okay. If you're just in orbit around the Earth and you're using it to counteract the drag, because the atmosphere goes an inf almost infinite distance, so there's a small amount of drag, it can counteract that drag and keep you in orbit forever, um, even in low Earth orbit. The further up you're in orbit, the less the drag is. Um, but um, um, you could use it for that. It could also be used to kind of clear out debris. Um, but I don't see it getting us to Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune and to other stars. Right. So from our conversation, what I got was we need to use our technology with some civility. Energy is a big thing to consider when we are doing yes. interstellar travel and also ion propulsion. Yeah, definitely ion propulsion. Um, and we, we've already had a spacecraft use ion propulsion. Yeah. It was a little probe and it did it perfectly. Um, we just need to get it on a bigger scale. Okay. So it's a technology we have. We just need to perfect it. Right. So with that being said, thank you so much for being here today uh, and uh, sharing your expertise and thoughts. And thank but... you for having me. Hopefully people watch this podcast, enjoy it. Hopefully you've learned something. Hopefully you've become a slightly better person as a result of it. Um, because after all, the end of the day, the true measure of a person isn't the amount of money you make. It's the impact you have on the lives of others. Hey, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Oates. Uh... Thank you.